Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 305. Episode 305. So, in over the last year or so, a debate has erupted in the United States over a thing called Christian nationalism. There was um, Stephen Wolf's book, uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism. There is uh, There was my book, Mere Christendom. And one of the things that has started to come out in the ongoing debate over Christian nationalism is the um, the attempt on the part of some of Christian nationalism's opponents to say that Christian nationalism is playing with fire, that fire being ethnic, um, what's commonly called racism, but it's, it's really ethnic vainglory or ethnic animosity. I think I'm reluctant to use the word racism because there's only one race, the human race. And but there are different ethnicities and tribes and clans and and so on. So the Navajo are an ethnos biblically speaking, the Japanese are an ethnos, and the edges of one ethnic identity can be pretty blurry. So an American black could be far more ethnically American than he is ethnically uh, Nigerian. So if a black American whose family has been here for centuries is, if you took him over to uh, Nigeria, he's going to have the same trouble fitting in that a white person would have. Uh, He's going to have the same trouble adapting because his ethnicity is American, not Nigerian. So an ethnicity can have different colors, and an ethnicity can have all the same character, you know, ethnic characteristics. It's a, it's a flexible accordion-like thing. It go, it can go, in and out. Well, with the discussion of Christian nationalism, the accusation is made that okay, you you sort of middle of the road responsible Christian nationalists are simply racism in the first trimester, and all the anti-Semites and the, um, the Kinnists and the, and the ethnic black-pilled trolls and so on, uh, that's third trimester stuff, or that's an ug- one ugly newborn. And so you guys, you Christian nationalist guys, are upstream from all these negative things that are going to come about as a result of you adopting this dangerous, has- hazardous view called Christian nationalism. So the idea is that Christian nationalism brings about this kind of kinism or brings about this kind of anti-Semitism and so on. I, I would like to uh, deny that, and I would like to reframe the whole uh, subject. Where does all this black-pilled animosity come from? Uh, and I would include sexual issues, the, the um, misogyny that is frequently on display also. Uh, is part of this. Where's where's what's the where's the energy for all of this coming from? My argument is the energy has come from basically the energy for all this 
is coming from critical theory, which has taught us to view the entire history of the world in terms of oppression and grievances. So everything is run through the grid of who's oppressing whom and who has a, who is the victim of that oppression and who consequently has a grievance. And then intersectionality is when someone sort of can layer their grievances. So they're not only black, but they're also a woman and they're also a lesbian. So if you're a black lesbian woman, you get three intersectional points. And if you are a deaf black lesbian woman, you get four intersectional points and so on. So critical theory has been shoved down our throats for a number of years now, and everybody has been taught to think in terms of grievances. Now, a number of people on the right have picked this lesson up and say, okay, you want grievances? I'll give you grievances. I'm white, and I'm straight, and I'm Irish, and I'm angry, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to fight back against the critical theory apparatus. But the person who does this in anger and bitterness doesn't realize he's not fighting against critical theory. He's adopting it. He's just choosing a different team. He's, he's adopting the whole structure of it. So the illustration I use to talk about this is, let's say you've got an abusive set of parents. Mom and dad are both very, very abusive, angry and hostile and mean and everything. They're just bad parents. And let's say they have five kids. And let's say they mistreat all the kids. And they mistreat all the kids in horrible, horrible ways. And the kids grow up and predictable things start to happen. One of the daughters is cutting herself and has been in and out of the hospital. Another daughter is a prostitute and goes from relationship to relationship with her, her various pimps. And two of the sons have been in and out of jail for drug charges. And the fifth son became a Christian. Okay, now, if you got those five together, and they were talking about the problems they have with mom and dad, there would be a good deal of overlap. You could, you could record the statements of all five. There would be, and you made a Venn diagram out of them. All five would, would make comments that overlap. That, okay, yeah, we agree with that. We agree on that. We agree on that. But it is, would not, let's say the one who became a Christian was the oldest one. It does not follow that the one who became a Christian and is responding to the abuse of the parents in a responsible and godly way is somehow causing the problems that his siblings are exhibiting. He's, no, they're all, they all have to live in the same world. They all have to deal with the same uh, problems. One of them is dealing with them responsibly, and the others are dealing with them irresponsibly. So I would say that the uh, I don't feel, if someone says, don't you feel bad about the right-wing alt-right kinists and the right-wing alt-right anti-Semites and the alt-right, don't I feel bad about it? No, not at all. I didn't, I didn't cause that to happen. That was the, that was the left's doing, some of it uh, on purpose and some of it inadvertent. Always will be God. So continuing on with episode 305 with the podcast here. We come to our 
martiology section. So, all right, martiology majors, we now come to a very serious sin, one that is repeatedly tagged as such in Scripture. Okay, so this this is a big sin, big ticket sin, capital S sin. The sin is thumos, thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S, thumos, which means wrath. There's an important distinction to make here. The same word is used to describe the wrath of God, which is holy, righteous, and good. In other words, not a sin at all. But it's also used to point to the acrid and malicious forms of it that men embrace. So in James, it says man's anger does not serve the righteousness of God. But God's anger certainly does. When God is angry, it is holy. And when man is angry, it is unholy. Unless it is the anger of the Lord that he is sharing with us. Having made that distinction, let's get the righteous forms of it out of the way at the front end. God's wrath falls on the Babylon of Revelation in multiple places, uh, Revelation 14.8 and 14.10 and 14.19. The seven plagues and the seven bowls were filled up with God's wrath, Revelation 15.1, 15.7, Revelation 16.1, Revelation 18.3. And then in two places, this word is translated by the word fierceness. That's in Revelation 16.19 and Revelation 19.15. And there it's the fierceness of God's wrath or the wrathiness of God's wrath. And then there's one place where it is rendered as indignation. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. That's Romans 2.8. So that's the, uh, those would be the godly forms of wrath as exhibited in the divine anger. Now to the sinful forms of it. Thumas when we're dealing with man's anger, is almost always going to be sinful. What happened when Jesus taught in the synagogue? So, in Luke 4, 28, and they all in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They were filled with wrath. Just notice, uh, incidentally, that there's some, there's some sins that people don't commit at church. They don't commit in the synagogue. They don't usually shoot up heroin in the narthex of the church. They don't usually uh, open their browser to some porn site uh, during the Bible study at the church. They don't sin that way at church. But wrath is oftentimes a sin that is tolerated at church. People in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. That was their response to the sermon. And the word describes the rioting crowd at Ephesus. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. That's in Acts 19.28. Ungodly kings are like this, Hebrews 11.27. The devil is like this also, Revelation 12.12. The devil was full of wrath. Those who live this way are not going to heaven. In Galatians 5.20, we'll jump into the middle of a list of sins, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, there it is, strife, seditions, heresies. And then Paul ends that by saying, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these things describe those outside the church, but the New Testament does contain many warnings to Christians as Christians regarding it. So, Christians are, it's not like, oh, you became a Christian, you're now a part of the body of Christ, you're automatically exempt from the temptations to Thumos. No, that's not the case. I, there are three, um, three passages I would share with you here. 2 Corinthians 12, 20, 
Paul says to the Corinthians, For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, there we go, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. What was Paul braced for? What, what, what was he possibly braced for when he came to Corinth? <laughs> Debates, envying, wrath, strife, back, backbitings, whispering, swellings, tumults. He was expecting quite possibly to walk into a rat's nest of sin. And then he writes to the Ephesians. He tells them, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Uh, we sometimes feel that we have a right to our wrath, a right to our anger, but Paul says simply, put it away, be done, take it off. So he wants you to take off your Adam coat and put on your Jesus coat. And the Adam coat, one of the characteristics of your Adam coat is wrath. Uh, so if you, are, if you are a father or a mother given to fits of wrath in the home, what does the Bible tell you to do? Well, take it off, put it away. And then Colossians 3.8, same thing. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. So, there we go. God don't never change. He's God. So, continuing on with episode 305 of the podcast, uh, the book I wanted to mention uh, this time is The Fourth Turning Is Here. The Fourth Turning is here. Now, I've reviewed the book, The Fourth Turning, for the podcast before. I don't know what episode I did, but The Fourth Turning was written back, I think, in the 90s. It was written some time ago, a few decades ago. And it was written by two men, Howe and Strauss. Howe and Strauss. And basically, they, uh, their grid for understanding history is that Particular, and they focus on Anglo-American, Anglo-American history. They and they, but they say that a similar understanding held among the Romans, uh, and that is the their idea is the idea of a seculum. A seculum is approximately as long as one long human life, somewhere between eighty and a hundred years. So that's a seculum, and that seculum, if let's take it as eighty years. That seculum can be divided into four sections, four 20-year sections. And the fourth turning, the fourth section, is characterized by a time of crisis. So, uh, if, we, if we went back one seculum from today, that would land us in the previous fourth turning, which was the Second World War. If you went back one seculum from the Second World War, that would land you in the Civil War. If you went back one seculum from the Civil War, that would land you in the War for Independence. So, so there's this convulsive crisis that happens in the fourth turning. And then a certain hero class wins the war, wins the battle, wins through the crisis, and they emerge into, into the next era, the first turning. And so the uh, the thesis propounded by Howe and Strauss back in the day when they first published it was an exercise in futurism. They were predicting that certain things were going to happen 
right about now. And turns out that they are happening right about now. And so Strauss has, um, has since died. And so Howe, the other, his co-author, has written another book called The Fourth Turning Is Here. So the, the book, The Fourth Turning, laid out their case before any of this happened. And then in this book, The Fourth Turning Is Here, Howe is pointing, pointing out all the, all the ways in which their projections landed were, were accurate. Now, if you put any credence in these things, and I think that there is a, I believe there is good reason for saying that there's something to this. Uh, it's not magical or mystical. It's just simply saying that human societies have ages just like human individuals do. So you're, you're young, then you're a youth, you're, you know, you're a child, then you're a youth, then you're middle-aged, and then you're old. Well, societies do the same thing. Societies are characterized by certain traits depending on when when the leadership of that society was born. The um, the upshot of it is if you if you give credence to what Howe is saying, he thinks that we are within the last decade of the fourth turning now. So if you're looking forward to the end of Clown World, it may get a good deal more bumptious than it is now, but he th- he thinks that it would everything is going to be done. The crisis that we're currently going through is going to be done by the first part of the 2030s, likely in less than 10 years. So I recommend the fourth turning is here. Uh, it's provocative, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. 